welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And if you have any questions or comments, you can always email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com, or you can leave them in the comments section on Podbean, and that's where our, our podcast resides. Okay, a lot of stuff to get to. I'm not going to bore you with more indictments and the two-tiered system of justice that we have that everybody's catching on now. The fact that millions of dollars were going into bank accounts and somehow even Biden family grandchildren were, were cashing in, except for the one in Texas. She apparently got some of Hunter's uh, uh, finger paintings and, of course, can't use the last name of Biden. But you know what? That's a... That's a benefit to her. Uh, I don't think she needs to go through life with that kind of a millstone around her neck. Because Biden, I don't know what language it is, but it must mean criminal in some some language somewhere. But anyway, uh, I do a lot of driving. Um, there are places uh, where you don't get a whole lot of radio reception. And only one of my cars, my wife's car, has um, satellite radio. So I do without um, and I kind of like listening to a variety of stuff. Um, a couple times I've clicked on to, it's CBS Sports Radio. And I have to tell you, now first of all, I am not your, I am not their customer. I am not the guy who wants to go over all the minutia with these, you know, drama queen athletes and drama queen coaches and all the rest of that. That's not me. So... Very little of it applies to me. One of the reasons, though, I kind of clicked onto it a little bit, and I can listen to it for a short period of time, is I always want to see if they actually are a sports radio station, which they're not, because all they cover is football, baseball, and basketball. That's it. That's that's what they cover. Um, they don't really talk too much about other things. Um, they certainly would never cover the shooting sports. Oh my God! But they don't—they don't cover NASCAR or anything, any of these other things that people are interested in, which I thought was very interesting. They did, however, put up a spirited defense of the women's national, t- the women's W I and women's something national team. Though I don't know. <clears throat> so. Uh, sorry about clearing my throat. It's it's a high pollen day today, so it's 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 been pretty rough. But the women's W it's W I N T women's international national team. I don't know what they are. Um, so you know it's the U.S. women's soccer team. They've had a very checkered past. Now, hey, they've won the World Cup last couple times, and they won Olympic gold medals and all this other stuff. So we have to listen to their to their bullcrap, you know, um, <clears throat> the one gal on there with the, the 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 strange hair and the rest of them, and so you know this this CBS Sports guy was after they lost and they got clocked in this last World Cup because they were overcompetent, overconfident, they were arrogant, they didn't prepare, they didn't study their team. They I guess they thought they were just going to run on the field and the other team would surrender but as it was they got clobbered and of course in the first game against North Korea uh, there was the usual the the national anthems played in front of the flag and of course um, a lot of the members of the team showed disrespect and everything to the flag and to the deal and this sports radio guy was defending them saying you that's the one thing that you can't criticize them for. You can criticize them for all their... First of all, I don't care about women's soccer. I don't care. I'm not their customer. So if they win, great. If they don't win, hey, it's 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 not anything on my radar screen. The only thing that's ever... That's put them on most people's radar screens are the, the things they've said about the country, the disrespect to the flag and to the anthem. That's really given them more notoriety and made them more infamous than famous. A lot of people in the United States were rooting against them. I, I personally don't care. but So he was saying, uh, basically criticize them on their soccer, not not their lack of patriotism and slovenly um, 
behavior in in front of the flag and during the anthem. I take just the opposite view. I say I don't care about soccer. Hey, you, you win, you win, you lose, you lose. Go out there, play your best game, whatever it is. If you make mistakes, if you had the wrong lineup, if your players are too old now and they've lost a couple of steps and these younger players from other countries kick their ass, I don't care. I just don't care. But I do believe when you represent the country, certain decorum is expected. And I'll tell you why. But, you know, when you represent the United States, other countries are around, hey, when they raise the flag and play the anthem, you show the proper respect. Now, on your own Facebook page, if you're one of these athletes, you can say whatever you want. I don't care. Say whatever you want on your Instagram or what other stupid social media platform that that you have. I don't I don't really care. But during the flag ceremony, during the anthem, during any of that, you have to show proper de- decorum. Now what should have happened in the first game is when they were acting all slovenly and everything, who's ever in charge of this thing, and, and they probably don't have the power to do it, but who's ever in charge of this thing should have come down and said, they should have told them ahead of time, show the proper decorum, this is what we expect. And if that's not delivered, he should have come down and said, I'm sorry, we're forfeiting the game and we're disbanding this team right here, right here and now, disbanding. You're going to get plane tickets, be, be on the airplane tomorrow morning, and have a nice day. That's what they should have done. Now, that, that sounds harsh, that sounds old school, hardcore and everything, but I, I will tell you why. I will tell you why. Um, for me personally, and again, I don't care. Hey, I realize there are people who are professional athletes who have grown up in very, very disadvantaged circumstances. I realize that there are people who are professional athletes who have this social consciousness and they want a better life for everyone and they think the country hasn't delivered it and all the rest of it. I realize that a lot of these athletes are the byproducts of our flawed and failing education system, which has failed to teach them um, the true history of the country. I realize all that. But I also realize that on September 11th, 2001, and I'll just put it right there, um, three guys who I knew who worked in the Pentagon aren't here anymore. Now, they weren't close friends or anything. They were, they were acquaintances. I knew them, would talk to them. They aren't here anymore. They were killed that day, okay? Um, they were buried under the flag. They were buried with those. When those honors are rendered, whether it's in a sporting game or in a, uh, at Arlington, it, it requires the decorum from the people who are present. Um, I can also tell you that I go to the USASOC, U.S. Army Special Operations Command Memorial Wall, and you can imagine what that is. That's a wall of the people who were killed in action in Iraq and Afghanistan. And on that wall are four names. And those people were friends of mine. Those people were friends of mine. Uh, two of them died late December 23rd. Yeah, think about that. Their families got notified basically Christmas Day that they'd been killed. Think about how 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 awful that must be the most awful thing you can imagine the most awful thing you can imagine and that's after we'd been there six or seven months and people are starting to look forward to hey you know we're kind of past the the midpoint um it's pretty rough it's pretty rough um and again same thing with the funerals same thing and so seven people, uh, four of them were, were friends of mine who I knew on practically a first name basis. Um, there were a couple that had some rank differences, so we weren't on a first name thing, but I knew them very, very well, very close, worked with them very close. One of them had been my NCOIC, which is non-commissioned officer in charge. I was in charge of a detachment. He was the non-commissioned officer in charge of the detachment. So we worked very, very closely together, making sure that the soldiers were all taken care of, prepped, and, you know, facilitating the movement overseas, all that stuff. Okay, those four people are gone. That's why I have no tolerance 
for some blue-haired, you know, anorexic-looking creature who wants to talk shit about the country and show disrespect to the flag. You don't kneel. You know, you don't kneel. You stand there with comportment. You put your hand over your heart for the national anthem if you're on that. That's what's expected. If you can't deliver that, then you don't need to be on the team, and we don't need a team at all because, you know, who cares? It's, it's a soccer tournament, you know, really. Now, I know that there are some people on the team who probably disagreed with their slovenly behavior, but I also say that I know I personally would never be on a team where members did that. I would, I would say, you, you straighten up and fly right, or I'm out of here. And so it's, an indivi- it's not an individual thing of, you know, Santa Claus, who's been naughty, who's been nice. It's that team has to represent itself. And if it doesn't, you walk away. You quit right there on the spot. Because that's how important it is. That's how important. So, you know, I think about that. that that's, that's immediately what comes to, to grips when it comes to this stuff. And as I said before, these guys never cover the shooting sports in the Olympics or anything. I watch a little bit of the Olympic coverage. Uh, again, I'm not their customer. I really don't care who can jump the longest. I really don't care who, who's the fastest in the 400-meter dash. I don't really care. But anyway, um, you know, they almost never cover shooting. I've seen maybe one or two, you know, just little brief things. And, you know, the greatest, maybe the greatest Olympian of all time, because they're always talking about G-O-A-T, you know, Tom Brady's the greatest of all time, or... Somebody else is the greatest of all time. They're always, they always like this greatest of all time moniker. Well, the greatest Olympian of all time, in my opinion, you could argue that Kim Rohde, the trap shooter, is. I mean, she medaled in, was it four straight Olympics? Four straight Olympics? Yeah. Maybe it was six Olympics. I can't remember. But man, she she went in the Olympics. I think it was six Olympics she's medaled in. And she's gotten a couple of golds, a couple of silvers, a couple of bronzes. I mean, if that isn't greatest of all time, now I realize it's not like swimming where every race has its own gold medal. But I mean, she's medaled in all of these. It must be four Olympics as I'm thinking of the math, but she's medaled in all of these. That's incredible. That is incredible. And so, but they never they never talk about anything like that because, you know, the shooting sports are to them dirty and, and bad. And, you know, uh, they, they can't, in their world view, sports is only legitimate if it's melded into this popular culture. You know, I hate to say rap music, but, you know, kind of that crummy part of the Hollywood entertainment business yeah so anyway um, so you know it's just there's so much crap out there it's it's unbelievable where people just don't step back now I would sit there and say if we had a guy or a gal who let's say they won a medal in the shot put for six four or six Olympics in a row I would say that's that's awesome, and that's not my again. That's not my deal. I'm not their customer. I don't watch something like that, or the discus, or some some other you know one that's not really that popular. I would say, wow, that's really something. Um, but they they just don't acknowledge shooting as a sport. So you know the sports radio is really only sort of sports radio. <laughs> so they're fools, and. Uh, you know, long enough on that. But that's the reason that I hold, like, the women's soccer team, um, you know, to, to a higher standard. I mean, they should, have, they should have acted like they were representing the country and not some, you know, broken down social justice warriors. And now they're a laughing stock because they got their butts kicked. And I hate to use the term, but they are B-words. And they deserved it. They deserved to get their butts kicked. And uh, so I would say to the sports guys, 
you know, hey, tough man, I am going to criticize him on that. And I <clears throat> I would challenge any of those guys, you want to argue that with me, um, I think you're going to lose because um, your little fantasy sports world, compared to the real world, just isn't very much. Uh, enough on that. Uh, you know, one of the things that... I remember how, and here we are in the middle of August, and remember how, you know, the Ukrainians were going to do a counteroffensive, and man, they were going to kick butt, and they were getting all these cool Western weapons, and all these knuckleheads were going over there and training them, and all that. And you see, it's come to nothing. Um, you see, it's just come to nothing. The Western vehicles are getting knocked out, just like the old soviet era vehicles were um you know this stuff that they just were able to you know find laying around in in equipment yards and you know patched up got running and sent to ukraine just isn't doing very well and the ukrainians aren't doing very well even the people who are the ukrainian cheerleaders like the institute for study of war have basically said um that the russian flexible multi-layered defense their defense in depth um, has just been containing the Ukrainian counteroffensive, and and they might they might lose a little territory, but their defensive lines aren't breaking. It's it's kind of a flexible, you know, it's it's kind of like a a big giant rubber band type of deal. It's it'll move, but it'll kind of it can kind of spring back, and it's not, just not getting penetrated. So. The Western weapons aren't having the effect that everybody thinks they are. But that doesn't stop Joseph Robinette Biden, who has some, from all, from the testimony, some pretty fat bank accounts sitting around the world. He's, they want to send them more and more and more money um, and more stuff to the point where we're depleting our own ammunition. We're, de we're depleting our own ammunition stocks because... We've invested so much in high-tech ammo that it's not like World War II where we can just open a factory and crank out artillery shells. Now they, the artillery shells and these precision-guided weapons and all these other things are a lot harder to make and a lot more complex. So consequently, we can only make them at a certain rate. And when we deplete what we have, that rate, it's going to take it a while to catch up the stocks and that is a that is a very bad thing but on the other hand we are running out of people who can man them in our own armed forces anyway um, I think they missed I think the army missed its goal by 10,000 last year that doesn't sound well it kind of sounds like a lot it you know it's one of those things of how how big how big is that that is pretty significant but the thing that is much more significant is that of all of the military age population and this is both male and female now we're coming to the point where 80 percent of that population and that's between like 18 and 20 probably 17 and 24 um, only 20 percent of them can even make the entry-level requirements because we're raising a nation of little porkers who are well they have every problem in the world they have every excuse in the world they're playing video games all the time and they're little porkers and so we have our our population of kids is becoming porkier and porkier and porkier and the population of fit kids is shrinking so only 20 percent are eligible so that's that's who they've got to go after now. They, they go after this 20%, and that's that's small, you know, that's small. That is only one-fifth of the kids in that age group, or young people in that age group. That is frightening, because if that trend continues, at what point does it become 10%? At what point does it become 5%? At what point does it become near 0%? I don't know. Uh, fitness is not taught in school. It's 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 absolutely become a super big problem. So um, rather than go into all of the issues, 
Well, I, I can tell you one of the, I don't know if it's still this way. I imagine it is in, in a lot of parts of the country, but because of energy costs, because Joe Biden is, is uh, choking our energy, but this is even going back a few years because of energy costs, kids would actually go do their PE, their physical education. And let's say they, you know, when I did it, you did physical education, you showered out and you went to your next class. If you were lucky, you had it as the last class of the day and you could just shower out and go home. Or you could just straight go home. You know, you didn't have to shower out. So consequently, um, you know, but they had to run showers. And now with all kinds of problems of sexualization and, and, and things like this, they don't want kids naked in the schools, even if they're bathing. So what they did was... They um, um, just turned all that off. So kids come, kids come into PE class. They change into their workout clothes or their physical education clothes. They do that. Then they come back, change into their street clothes, and they take their little stinky backsides through the rest of the day. So that's a pretty. That was the pretty grim thing. Same thing after it was even after like basketball practice and things. They they just don't have these kids showering um, because they don't want naked kids in the shower. You know, I don't know if they don't trust each other, don't trust the coaches, don't trust other kids, whatever it is. But to us, it was just kids would go and shower and get out. Now it's something else again. So um, I'm sure physical education is now a and, and of course so they didn't turn like the super stinky kids it's not like they're out there playing volleyball and baseball and anything else I think they're out there you know playing four square and stuff so who knows who knows where that's all gonna go but where it's leading us is that fewer and fewer kids are fit enough for military service so who's gonna operate all these weapons that get progressively bigger and heavier and all the rest of it and the answer is, I don't know, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's an ominous turn. It's an ominous turn, and we don't even see it coming. Yeah, we will, you know what, we'll talk about drones another time. We will do that another time. Okay, questions and answers, my favorite part of the podcast. And um, first one. Why are cap and ball and pre-1898 guns not considered firearms legally? How does that work? You know, that's just an arbitrary um, cutoff that I believe was Gun Control Act of 68. Uh, They said anything pre-1898, because they assumed that that would all be black powder. There were a few smokeless powder guns, but basically that was the black powder cutoff. And they said, stuff like that, we're not even worried about. Nobody's, you, in those days, you couldn't get black powder ammunition. You could not get black powder 4570 or any of these other things. So uh, a lot of these guns could not shoot smokeless powder ammunition. And you couldn't get black powder ammunition. So they said, eh, pff, forget it. We don't care. We just don't care. So that was interesting. Um, a lot of people, including myself, believe that that 1898 should be moved up to 1945. That would make some amount of sense. So, but anyway, that's how that works. Now, is a pre-1898 firearm, if it's not a firearm, hey, can I go carry it? Like, if there's a sign saying no firearms, well, this legally isn't a firearm, so I could carry it into wherever. And the answer is no, because it's still considered a dangerous weapon. It's like, yeah, I can't, I can't go into a courthouse with a Scottish broadsword. It's it's not a, it's not a firearm, but it's still a dangerous weapon. So, um, just like a knife and just like anything else, it could still be considered a dangerous weapon. It's just not legally a firearm for purposes of transferring and and all that. So, that's that's what that 1898 cutoff really is. It doesn't mean that. They're non-firearms. It means that they are still weapons, but they're not regulated as firearms. Here's a question I don't know very much about. How does 10 millimeter rate with other powerful handguns, such as 41 and 44 Magnum? 
Um, it's it's less powerful. I don't consider 10 mil. It, it's kind of neither fish nor foul. It's not really a Magnum cartridge, but it is a powerful auto pistol cartridge. So uh, most people I know who have 10 millimeters and trying to think how many that is right offhand. It's several. Um, they use it for exclusively kind of sporting purposes. Um, one guy I know is a bowling pin shooter, and he says, hey, this is the best bowling pin gun. Um, he's got it in actually a Smith & Wesson revolver, 610 revolver. Um, I've known a couple other guys who carry it for bears, you know, or, or other things that, that are, you know, out in the woods, you know, however that is. Um, that's kind of what people use it for. It is not a Magnum, but it's more powerful than what we had usually considered to be um, um, standard auto pistol cartridges. They're nice. I think it's actually had some sort of a resurgence. Part of that resurgence has been there have been some nice 1911s uh, chambered for it. So, you know, it is what it is. It's it's a good alternative to 45 ACP if you're an out if you're an outdoorsman and you want to carry an auto pistol. There are very few revolvers for it. I don't even think Smith & Wesson makes the 610 anymore. They might, but I if they do they don't sell many of them. <laughs> Okay, is the 357 SIG dead? Um, yeah, 357 SIG, the neck down 40 Smith & Wesson. A very interesting concept. However, what does it give you that a 40 Smith & Wesson doesn't? And the answer is, well, on paper, a lot, but in practicality, not very much and it was expensive it was like 45 glock auto pistol gap you know he supposed to be an improvement but it was just never going to displace the cartridge that it was intended to be improved upon i mean i think there were a few departments police departments or sheriff's departments that adopted 357 sig but boy you don't see them around anywhere i mean occasionally you see the ammo um, but again, it's expensive and hard to find. You know, that's that's a big criterion now is what is it, you know, how it doesn't matter how good a cartridge is, how expensive is it and how hard to find is it. Um, that's that's becoming more and more of a of an issue because we have so many cal we, we've inflated the market with too many calibers. To the point where old favorites like 3040 Crag you can't find anymore, 303 British you can't find anymore. The American companies don't even load it anymore. You usually have to go to uh, PPU um, to get that stuff. And they fortunately they load a lot of obsolete calibers. So you know there's there's too many out there because everybody had to have a short magnum, then a super short magnum, and and everything else. And they've they've actually kind of uh, pushed out a lot of great calibers that needed to be needed to be there. Okay, a magazine cutoff in a service rifle. Why did these come about? If you don't know what a magazine cutoff is, it's a, a device that if your rifle holds five rounds, like the 1903 Springfield, you click on the magazine cutoff. Those five rounds stay in the magazine, and you can single load on top of them. Um, it seems in modern thinking it seems like an incredibly stupid idea and I'm not sure it was ever a great idea but I can tell you how it came about that you won't hear anywhere else um, it came about for two reasons the least important of those was the concern that troops would just burn through ammo now if you've ever shot a bolt-action rifle you know you you can burn ammo but it's not at the ferocious rate of of some of the other things so that was a that was a minor consideration the other consideration was there was a lot of these things started coming about early, very early 1900 so as soon as we started going from the single shot rifles like a trapdoor springfield a martini henry a few of these a few of these and and the the scads of european ones that, that were out there other european ones that were out there 
uh, the, the warfare in the second half of the 19th century that all the great powers were involved with were colonial wars, okay? And in the United States, it was the, the West. And a lot of these colonial powers, if you were in place like the Sudan or you were in other places, um, you know, the people you were fighting against might be mounted. And one of the things they like to do, and the American Indians were this way, is they would just kind of, you know, be shadowing you out of range and, or what they thought was out of range. And you might be shooting, they, you didn't want them to, they were trying to bait you to use your ammunition so that you could, so that they could see the lull in firing as you're reloading and then charge in. I'm not describing this particularly well, but uh, the British especially, you know, um, a lot of times they just had these, their infantry were in squares, and if you ever saw the movie Four Feathers, you see what happens when, you know, the square starts to break down. Cavalry can break a square. You really want that reserve of ammo for when the cavalry charge is serious, and you can just work the bolt and pop. When they're farther out at range, or they're, they're just shadowing you, um, you just want to use those single rounds so that you can, um, you know, so you can engage them, but you still have that reserve in, you, in the magazine of your rifle. That's why these things came about. It was not a stupid idea at the time. Uh, as it turned out, it was completely unnecessary, but it was not a stupid idea at the time. The only other reason that these things were kind of kept around, and they, they kept them around on a few rifles, um, was the fact that they helped close order drill because when you have the cutoff on, um, your bolt does not come all the way back, therefore it doesn't lock back, so it makes your close order drill a lot cleaner and a lot easier to do. And this was in a time when armies did a lot of close order drill. You were either out on the range firing, you were on maneuvers, you were doing all the things you needed to do to keep your fort or your base good but a lot of times you were doing you know six or eight hours of close order drill so you know this this made that it's facilitated that quite a bit so that's why magazine cutoffs were there they were kind of an unnecessary complication uh the british deleted theirs i think in world war one and australian i think it world they kept theirs to world war two and then um got disposed of theirs the 1903 kept it and it wasn't a big deal because in World War II, the O3 and the O3A3 um, were secondary weapons, so it, it didn't really matter. It just it wasn't worth the hassle to change the design, so they just made it that way. So that is why we have magazine cutoffs, and that is how they came about. Okay, next, if you had to choose a World War One rifle and handgun combo excluding u.s arms what would it be and why yeah that's a tough one um i i can tell you though i can tell you though right offhand what it would be and it would be world war one now uh it's really a no-brainer i would choose a short magazine lee enfield because it has 10 rounds instead of five and the only reason that's important is if you're in a trench pitched battle in the trenches I don't really want to be I'd rather have 10 rounds in my magazine than five so that's that and I'm shooting at short range anyway 303 cartridge is fine and I've shot the gun enough I know know it, it to choose a handgun there's really only one other choice that is a Luger uh, you know great gun it's got very good controls button magazine release all that good stuff so that uh, that would be what I would choose, those two. For a backup gun, and I'm just throwing this in, I would take the Webley Model 1907 and 32 ACP. These were carried as backup, backup guns by British officers. Um, so 32, it's not very powerful, but it's better than nothing. It's better than the empty revolver you're holding. So I'd, I'd carry one of those as a backup. They're light, they're easy. That's what I'd do. Okay, here's another question. How important were bayonets in World War I, and why were they so different? 
Um, you know, that's an interesting question. Uh, part of the reason they were so different is because they're essentially two types of bayonets, knife bayonets and spike bayonets. Spike bayonets had the advantage of being very cheap, being very easy to use, and they didn't take a lot of material. So, you know, during the war especially, uh, that, was, that was pretty advantageous. Some spike bayonets, like the ones on Carcano carbines and things, could be mounted right to the rifle, which was very convenient. In the same way that the more modern SKS and even some of the Chinese AKs had spike bayonets on them. So those were very, very um, efficient. You know, I mean, face it, for the kind of bayonet fighting that there was, spike bayonet, hey, you just you, you push it through and you can stab somebody. And, and they had little, you know, was it wasn't just a straight spike but it was usually kind of triangulated and it did have some edging uh, sharp edges on it um, you know and they, those were found to be satisfactory before the war the knife bayonet ruled um, and they got bigger especially with the Germans they started out in the early 1900s with a, a very thin almost like a sword almost like an epee or a foil type bayonet for their uh, Gewehr 98 and then they went to the butcher blade they call them bayonets a the big thick blade bayonets and uh, a knife bayonet has some advantages um, its advantages are is that when you're doing a slash or, or cutting or a downward movement um, you know they can they can deliver a, a very a very significant blow as well as being a very very good stabbing uh, weapon um, their disadvantages are they can they're heavier they require more material um, they're a lot more cumbersome uh, there's there's some disadvantages to them um, and then there was the the notion even going back into the 1800s that you know maybe if a bayonet is more useful if it can fill some other function so they like the germans cut put teeth on the back of theirs so that and those are the it was never meant to inflict casualties. It was meant that, hey, you could use this as a saw. Now, I don't, I've never tried to do that, but I can only imagine it was a crappy saw. But it was better than nothing, I guess. So, you know, if you're building or, you know, trying to reinforce your trench and you need to cut some limbs and branches and, and things, uh, you can use that. Um, you know, you go back into the 1870s, 1880s, the U.S. Army actually tried to trowel bayonet. A horribly stupid idea you put it on the end of your rifle and you could use it as like a little quasi shovel which was bad for the rifle bad for the bayonet and probably just pitifully slow um, every once in a while you'll see you they've made reproductions of those and then every once in a while you'll see an original um, yeah they were never popular and never widely adopted or useful but everybody was always trying to figure out another use for the bayonet up to modern times, um, talking the Cold War, where the Kalashnikov bayonet and other bayonets emulated it, uh, including the US M9 bayonet, uh, you could use it as a set of wire cutters, you know, just get some. It, the US M9 bayonet basically, and the Kalashnikov bayonet, basically became a knife that there was also a wire cutter that would fit on the end of your rifle. So they tried to, tried to get as much utility into those things as they could. But they were all very different, and uh, what they found out is that it really didn't matter. <laughs> you know, one of the other things they were always obsessed about is, well, if my rifle is 40 inches long and my bayonet is 9 inches long, that's 49 inches. <clears throat> but if my enemy, my potential enemy, has got a 42-inch long rifle and a 10-inch long bayonet, now he's got more reach, quote-unquote. And so they were they were fascinated with reach, and they developed longer bayonets to to um, to accommodate that and make you know make the the reach as long as possible. They found out that didn't matter either. One of the things that did matter is that the bayonet is an incredible psychological weapon. Um, you see, when whenever prisoners are being guarded, they're almost always guarded by people who have bayonets on their rifles 
because if you need to poke or prod somebody, uh, a bayonet's a really good weapon. A bayonet's also fierce. Nobody wants to get stuck with one. So if you have a fearsome-looking bayonet, um, it's a it's a it's a pretty uh, a pretty powerful psychological thing, even to the point where um, in World War II, the next war after World War One, um, you know they put your M1 carbine would have a bayonet. And I assume that was not because you were thinking that people were going to, you know, storm your foxhole. I think a lot of that had to do with prisoners uh, moving, moving civilians out of the way who were clogging roads, whatever, whatever it is you needed to kind of move people. Um, the bayonet will move somebody because nobody is going to reach out and grab it um, because it's sharp and it'll cut them. So it's, it, it was a very useful weapon in a lot of ways. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think, who was it, Barack Obama and Mitt Romney who had that famous thing, well, we don't use bayonets anymore either. That was Obama who knew nothing about the military he was at least supposed to be in charge of. We still had bayonets then. Um, with the M4, the sad part is the bayonet doesn't really work very well. So uh, that's, that just is what it is, and we haven't really used it since. But we've never had large numbers of of prisoners as in the Second World War and and a few other places so that's that's why bayonets are so different that's kind of the kind of the bird's-eye view I can give you of bayonet I've had a lot of bayonet training not a, yeah I've had a lot of bayonet training as I'm thinking about it um, I know for civil disturbance training we used we had bayonets we had shields and all that kind of stuff um, before a lot of these other, you know, kind of non-lethals came out, the, the bayonet was kind of the, kind of the standard thing. I think they had them at Kent State, as a matter of fact. They, they may have had them. If they didn't, they should have, because that probably could have, you know, you know that's, a, that's a whole other question and a whole other thing. Okay, here's another question that uh, I'm sure everyone is getting down on here and that is you know there have been a lot of carcanos hitting the market i guess it's that royal tiger import uh company royal tiger imports they um you know they went to ethiopia and made a big buy so they got all kinds of stuff they got a lot of early style m1 carbines which were pretty interesting again the condition of any weapon that's been in ethiopia for <laughs> 80 years is is not pristine okay there there were very few but some of them were in most of them i, I would say uh, the carbines especially were in decent enough condition so you know it makes a pretty good uh makes a pretty good addition to a collection or something uh the other the other side of the coin and the nice part is they were in their they were never rebuilt apparently so they're in their world war ii style configuration without the bayonet lug and with the simple flip sight but they also had mass quantities of Italian weapons and all this hodgepodge of European weapons, and some which were quite rare, actually, uh, rare in the United States. So uh, a lot of Carcados were on the market for like 200 to 250 bucks, and um, you know people bought them. People have been buying them. So of course, occasionally I get asked or I get I get the comment, "Well, I bought one of these things, and it's you know it's okay, but it's kind of a dog." And what do you really think of Carcanos? Um, I'm not a huge fan of Carcanos. I don't collect them. Uh, I have one, a 7.35 Carcano, um, which actually has finish marks on it and, and all the rest. So it's a different, it's a different animal. Uh, the other animals are that, uh, you know, there's a whole group of them from the 1891 rifle. There's a whole group of carbines and, and other things that go up through the through about 1940, I guess was the last, the last of the Carcanos, um, last of the variants, and they were used up through the end of the war, and you know probably that's in Europe, and they were probably used in Africa and other places uh, a lot longer. You know, obviously Ethiopia was not going to be on the cutting edge of military small arms, so those things could have been used uh, for decades after World War II. I don't want to get into the Kennedy assassination 
Um, but a lot of the a lot of the negativity towards the Carcano in the United States came from that event. It, it was kind of an unknown rifle before then. Nobody really paid any attention to the Carcano. It was an inexpensive surplus rifle. Um, nobody paid a lot of attention to it. It really moved into the forefront as the assassination weapon of John F. Kennedy. So um, that's where you get the really horrible propaganda that the Carcano is trash, they're unsafe to shoot, they're complete garbage. A lot of that was just the lore from that time. And it was also the expectations of shooters at that time who were used to um, very, very high quality surplus bolt action rifles. At, at that time, in, in 1963, through the 1960s, um, you know, German Mausers were very, very cheap, very high quality, very cheap. Other Mausers, uh, South America, you know, other European Mausers, very high quality, very inexpensive. Uh, guns that came from the DCM, you know, the U.S. surplus guns, Springfields, um, 1903, 1903A3, 1917, Enfield rifles. They were all very, very high quality compared to the Carcano. At least that was the perception. The Carcano is, is well made insofar as the materials are quite good. The design is very simple. It does not have a lot of finish on it um, as far as, uh, you know, being smooth and being polished. And, and you know, it is a, a simpler design. And it's an 1891, 1892, right around their design. So you really have to kind of compare it with the Krag, with the, uh, you know, the U.S. Krag, the the um, Moisin Nagant, you know, the LaBelle, you know, all that, that whole first generation of bolt action rifles. And, and it's, it's pretty good. Uh, it's pretty good. The, the fly in the ointment is it takes a slightly large, it's a 6.5, but the bullet is a couple hundred, a couple hundredths of an inch um, larger than the regular 6.5s we're used to. Therefore, uh, the usual 6.5 bullets you can get your hands on don't normally shoot well in the Carcano, which has further degraded its reputation. But if you can get the correct bullets, um, they shoot just fine. Uh, my Now, I have to stop right there because I don't shoot a 6.5 very much. I haven't shot one in years and years, and it wasn't my gun. Uh, I've shot the 7.35. I don't shoot it a lot because ammunition for it is hard to find and expensive when you do. And, and frankly, it's it's a good bolt-action carbine, but it's not that great, you know. I mean, it's not it's not something you want to go shoot every week. Um, and I have the finished version, which had a replacement front sight, so it was sighted for 200 meters as opposed to 300 meters. Um, you know, and like with any fixed sight gun, um, I'm sure that, you know, there's just no way to adjust it. Um, it just doesn't adjust. So consequently, it's, you know, for what it was designed for, which was combat, and even even the Forgotten Weapons guy several years ago, maybe five or six years ago, he kind of explored the Carcano and thought, you know, this is actually a pretty good, a pretty good rifle. Then he used it in a couple matches and says, well, it does have some, some foibles. Uh, the biggest problem with it is, in my opinion, is it had the Manlicker feed mechanism, which meant you had a packet of six rounds, you drop it in there, and then when the, uh, after you fire the sixth round, the empty clip ejects out of the hole in the bottom. Theoretically, the hole in the bottom is a big problem, and people debate it back and forth. It appears that in service, it wasn't that big a deal. I mean, I'm sure it caused a problem once in a while of stuff getting up in there, but it just didn't happen. It's not like there were stacks of car unusable Carcano rifles. Um, so consequently, um, it, it has gotten a very bad rap over the years, and uh, it's it's really kind of undeserved. They're fun to shoot. They're you know you're never going to see them this cheap again. So if you if you have the inclination to get one, get one. Um, you could, <clears throat> as far as the ammunition goes, um, I do believe that uh, PPU makes some. Whether it's got the correct bullets or not in 6.5, I don't know. I assume it does. I don't think they would make that kind of a mistake. But even if it doesn't, uh, you might be able to source some from somewhere else. 
as a last resort uh, you could always cast 6.5 bullets and powder coat them and hope that that brings it up to the uh, size <clears throat> that'll that'll engage the boar and and do all those things so it's a it's it's an interesting cool rifle great piece of history um, it has a very in, infamous history here in the United States because of the Kennedy assassination and uh, it, it sparks this endless debate of could the three shots have been fired in the six seconds and all the rest of it so that's the that's the info on the Carcano hey I just took a uh, short break and I did look up how many Olympiads that uh, Kim Rohde meddled in and uh, it is six she she got um, uh, several several golds one uh, one silver and two bronzes so uh, whatever that is I think that's three golds one silver and two bronze and that's over six and that's one medal every Olympics for six Olympics now hey if that isn't the greatest of all time I don't know what is but I wanted to clear up the earlier uh, uh, comments I was making about that um, okay here is our last question and our last question is which 1800s rifle metallic cartridge conversion system was the best and what they're talking about here are the you know they had all these after the Civil War and and all the, the Crimean War and all the rest of these countries were stuck with a whole bunch of muzzle-loading rifle muskets you know they had rifling uh, but you had to load them down the front. You had to use a mini A ball, you know, the typical, you know, thing. You had to stand up to do this, which in combat is a pretty risky proposition. You can't load them prone or anything. So they were stuck with hundreds of thousands, if not probably millions of these. If you go across the world, there were millions of these things. So countries knew that they would be with metallic cartridges with designs that were from the ground up designed for that but what are they going to do with all these rifles in the interim and until those more advanced designs get out what, what are you going to do for the next eight or ten years uh, so what you're going to do is convert the rifled muskets to metallic cartridges and there was a variety of ways of doing that um, I, I don't know I don't want to say best I would say that the it's called the Allen A-L-L-I-N the Allen system that evolved into the trapdoor Springfield was probably the best because actually it was so good they decided to make fresh rifles uh, for it you know they said hey you know we can we can actually just continue this as a design um, it was reliable it was robust you know it wasn't without controversy but um, it was a pretty good design and it lasted until the 1890s so I would have to say that's the most successful uh, the British Snyder, which converted their 577 uh, 1854 Enfield, I think that was a good system also. Um, its cartridge was inferior. Well, let me put it this way. The, the cartridge was about like the 58 caliber cartridge in the first Allen conversions. Um, then they then the all-in conversions went to 5070 which was ballistically better and then finally they wound up in 4570 in new rifles which were well the 5070s were probably new right some of those were most of those were probably new rifles also so um you know they, they got smaller and better cartridge but the design was so good that it was able to obviously keep up and it was pretty efficient the Snyder never was adopted for anything other than the 577 Snyder, which was like the 58 caliber um, cartridge that the uh, first Allen conversions were in. So uh, it never got any developmental help along the way. It kind of got abandoned when the um, British went to the Martini Henry. So uh, that's it. There were some, there are some that look like Allen conversions that are European obviously they're kind of design clones or ripoffs um, <clears throat> there's all kinds of rifles that got it then they they kind of got into this needle fire business by 1870 early 1870s um, countries were starting to field designs that were specifically uh, 
made from the ground up to be for metallic cartridges, you know, the black powder, lead bullet, metallic cartridge. And so the conversions kind of fell into second line use and given to colonial troops and territorial troops and uh, sold to civilians who were out on the frontier, that, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, they, they just kind of soldiered on. Um, I don't think any of those conversions made it to the First World War. I think, you know, a few martinis and, and some of these other things made it, um, but that, that particularly did not, the, uh, the Snyder. And uh, I have heard, now again, it's not technically a conversion because the, the rifle was made from the ground up to take metallic cartridges, but, you know, there were factory guards um, in the United States during World War One who had trapdoor Springfields, 1873, 1888 Springfields, you know, that, that, uh, and probably some carbines, you know, because that's a handy gun. Uh, and because there had been some sabotage, uh, there had been sabotage uh, of, and there was a fear of additional sabotage. And uh, so there were a lot of armed guards and, and face it, you're not going to give them they wouldn't even give them low number Springfields. <laughs> they gave them uh, they gave them trapdoors and, and the, you know there were some troops who got thirty thirties who were up in the Pacific Northwest where they were you know protecting uh, uh, copper mines and and uh, um, you know not only copper mines but also the forests where they could get the I think it was spruce is what they used in the early airplanes because it's a strong wood but you can bend it. To make it into something that'll fly so you know there was <clears throat> they they got kind of 30 30 winchesters because they were not expecting you know heavy combat so you know they might might have some saboteurs or something to deal with but that would be about it so um definitely um those systems are very interesting um the allen system i like particularly because it's very strong a lot strong when you look at just the geometry of how it works it's very strong um, and with modern cases or, or full brass cases it, it flips them out I, I know that there's always been some some uh, controversy that the early cartridges would kind of come apart when they were the empty cartridges being ejected it would kind of come apart and and be messy and be hard to get out of there so uh, you know it's a it's an interesting thing. It's it's tough to design a good conversion system because everything else on the gun was designed to do something else. Uh, a lot of sharps were converted to fifty seventy, um, especially carbines, and that that was really a flawless conversion. I mean that worked exceptionally well. Uh, the sharps is very simple falling block. Uh, all they had to do is fit an extractor in there and and bingo they were there some of them got new barrels some of them got relined barrels some of them were original barrels um, they had to reline at least the chamber to down to 50 70 so those were those were the the main ones I, I would say that uh, the sharps was a really good conversion and in fact they made sharps rifles up until I don't think they made them into the 1880s. I think they kind of went out of business in the 1870s and, you know, that's all the way that is. And they did, as far as I know, the last military sharps were the 5070 cavalry carbines that were used in the late 1860s, early 1870s. And uh, I don't think any military sharps were really made after that certainly not adopted by anyone because what else came on the scene well right after the right after the war the uh, uh, Remington rolling block came out and it was strong it was simple um, designed from the ground up for metallic cartridges so um, pretty sleek for for its day it was pretty sleek and uh, you know it soldiered on into the first world war you know um, seeing service with the French and also the British so yeah um, pretty interesting time it's it's amazing the difference between 1860 and say 1910 how how arms just evolved at a breakneck pace it was really something and and that's where a lot of my interest 
kind of goes it's it's so fascinating to see some of these some of these rifles and all the thought and all the craftsmanship that was put into them it's really amazing and, and of course pistols the same way um, you could even argue pistols were even more dramatic because you went from 1860 to very nascent small bore cartridge revolvers and the majority of handguns were cap and ball to by 1910 there were a lot of we were well into the auto pistol uh, era and there were a lot of auto pistols uh, up to and including nine millimeter you know was which is still a mainstay today and the 45 ACP of course was adopted in 1911 so it was you know it was kind of rapidly evolving so you know the that 50 years was really something but anyway uh, that's it for this edition of old school guns the 175th episode and until next time this is old school guns out <laughs>